MLB isn't just another hard-to-remember acronym. It stands for Minimum Lovable Brand, the 11FS approach to creating modern, iterative brands to help cut through the noise and create a genuine connection with customers and their culture. Brand is everything in this digital-first world, and we want to help you get it right. To learn more about Minimum Lovable Brand and to download our free handbook, head to bit.ly forward slash 11FSMLB. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Happy New Year. Uh, This is going to be our first show of 2021. And so for the very first time, we're going to be bringing you UK Financial Services wants to combat Brexit to access the EU markets. And Financial Group and Jack Ma in a bit of trouble with the Chinese regulators. And Tech's first union is started at Google. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 492, so close to 500, that's scary, isn't it, of Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Kate Moody. How are you doing, Kate? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. What are we going to do for episode 500? Have we, have we decided yet? Or? I think, uh, I know the, the the guys have got some uh, things planned, but let's not spoil the surprises just yet. But uh, but yeah, there's uh, it's scary, isn't it? Getting to 500, it's quite scary. I mean, I was 40 over the Christmas period. That feels like a lot, but uh, <laughs> 500 is going to feel like a, a real leap. But uh, how was your Christmas break? Yeah, it wasn't too bad. I'm still eating my way through a lot of overly ambitiously purchased food items so um kind of christmas has ended but the gluttony is, is still ongoing so we're good yeah there's a lot of cheese still being eaten in the, the brewery household which uh, which I'm, I'm all for quite frankly you know like i feel like uh, you know the new year's resolutions can wait till february as far as i'm concerned so uh, all right guys as always we have some awesome guests uh, joining us remotely uh, unfortunately in this period of time as well and making a welcome return we have anna herrera who is the fintech correspondent over at reuters how's it going anna good thank you thanks for having me no worries how was your break it was, it was fun. I'm still in, in Italy. Um, and as, as we were discussing before, I'm live from my childhood bedroom, which is pretty trippy. Um, it's been redecorated, but it's still very weird. I mean, never would you have thought when you were sleeping in there as a young girl that at some point you'd be doing like a random fintech podcast from it. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, great to see you, Anna, and uh, Happy New Year. Uh, joining Anna and making her FinTech Insider debut, we have Ayana Vidal, who is the Head of Policy and Government Affairs at Innovate Finance. How's it going, Ayana? It's going great. Thank you for having me. Lovely to be here. No worries. You're not coming to us from your childhood bedroom, I presume? No, no. My my kitchen that I own in some shape or form with a bank. <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah. Trying to dodge the London COVID. It's going out for my, my one daily, daily allowance of exercise um, and then sitting on Zoom calls for most of the day. That fresh air does feel a lot sweeter when you're only allowed it sort of once or twice a day, doesn't it? But uh, all right, guys. Well, uh, there's loads and loads of news that's happened over the break. So let's get into it. So first up, there was a, a story on City AM. This is, uh, unfortunately, the, the B word. We're going to get into it straight away, uh, Brexit. So uh, UK to start talks on a quick EU financial services agreement. The UK government will next week begin urgent talks to try and reach an agreement by March on the future of the UK's access to the EU financial markets. Uh, EST John Glenn and senior Treasury civil servant Catherine Braderick will begin dialogue with EU to forge a memorandum 
memorandum of understanding about the future of financial services access. The only way the UK financial services industry can maintain its pre-Brexit access to the EU is if Brussels grants regulatory equivalents, uh, which you would have thought with all the shenanigans we've been through so far is going to be reasonably difficult, I guess. But Iona, uh, this is very much up your up your street at Innovate Finance. So where do you think we're going to be going on this one? And uh, I mean, how do you think this will affect the, the UK scene? Um, well, it's really interesting because I think for, for such a long time now, probably for the last 12 months or so, the, the financial services industry was told not to expect anything from, from negotiations with the EU and just to sort of deal with the fact that um, if you wanted to continue to, to trade your services in Europe, you would have to set up an entity there. Um, so, you know, obviously the larger institutions are able to do that fairly easily. They probably already have bases out in Europe anyway but a lot of fintechs have had to go out and start setting up in different markets in Amsterdam in Dublin um so you know it's really it's interesting because we thought we wouldn't get anything so it's quite exciting to hear that we might get something now um but obviously we'll see what the next couple of months um brings um for uh, for the for the for the fintech sector and the financial services sector as well yeah it is it is interesting i i um I mean, passporting has been such a great benefit of UK fintechs. Uh, you know, particularly obviously from a uh, a banking licensing perspective, and the ability to sort of export through the UK, given the the sort of um, fruitful sort of soil that we've got for for kind of creating great um, great companies. But do you think that's a and, and Kate, maybe you sort of going to you? Do you think this is a big threat? to the UK fintech scene that actually that because I, I mean I, I'm a uh, they all sort of say it's it's the hope that kills you a little bit on some of these things so do you think not knowing is as bad as knowing it's something bad um well I guess you know to the point that Ayana's already made you know a lot of fintechs have already started to put things in place that will enable them to carry on trading so um I think you know Curve have already sort of established new outposts. I think Revolut have done the same. Modular, so quite a few people who do have European operations have already taken steps. Some of the biggest um, UK fintechs are perhaps a bit more concentrated just in the UK at the moment. So it maybe isn't impacting their current operations. You look at you know the likes of Monzo and Starling, for example. You know, not impacting their current operations, but might have put uh, constraints on on where they might have liked to grow in the future. So it's difficult to see kind of instant losses and instant problems but it's more kind of that loss of opportunity and and loss of growth optionality that I think is is a real shame and hopefully as we've mentioned they will be able to reach some sort of understanding about equivalence but from what I can what I can read that sounds like it's going to be fairly uh, light touch in terms of what's going to be agreed in March it sounds like we're going to need a fair bit of time to work out the details and even if they do grant equivalence then equivalence can be taken away fairly quickly if the UK does decide to forge its own path. So it's going to be something that's going to develop over over the next few months and and years, probably before we know for sure what the true impact will be. Mm. I mean, given how important financial services is to the UK, uh, I mean, we didn't forget to talk about, you know, fish in the North Sea, did we? You know, so, uh, and I'm not saying that this is like an oversight in terms of, you know, forgetting to have these conversations. But uh, I mean, given how important financial services is, and given how you know, uh, much of a financial centre we are, it just seems strange that this hasn't, these creases haven't been ironed out ahead of it. It's very hard to negotiate sort of uh, after the event, isn't it? So I I wonder if there's an element of 
European markets seeing an opportunity here. So obviously, we know that London is a leading financial centre. And actually, a lot of firms outside of Europe will use London as a jump off point into Europe. That's, you know, we are the gateway for that. Um, So I think there was probably a little bit of European wait and see. Let's see if there's a bit of the, the UK market that we can bite into. And and I used to work in legal services. So I know that certainly from the legal perspective, that's exactly what they were they were thinking. Um, but, you know, financial services and fintech are global. They're, you know, so you can't sort of hive off um, a certain part of the market and expect to not do well. So I think, you know, it's encouraging, I think, that Europe are now seeing you know that it's it's good to talk about this stuff i think um kate's right that it's going to take a, a long time to get to a place where we might have something that's very comprehensive but i guess this is a good first step in getting there yeah i think um you're right to mention legal services as well because we naturally focus on financial services on on this show but really it seemed to be kind of the service services industry as a whole that missed out a fair bit in in this deal and you know services make up about 80% of the UK economy as a whole and about 50% of our exports. So obviously financial services is a huge part of that and one of the biggest sort of sub-industries within that. But lots and lots of different types of services will be in a similar position of not having clarity and being confused at this point in time. So um, it's not just financial services. Well, bringing in our, our European, who's who's actually sat in Europe right now. I'm joking. Do we still? We can we we can still call ourselves European, Kate, can't we? I, I guess that's uh, it's more about the physicality of geography. I don't think you were annexed to Asia, as far as I know. I think you're still part of the continent. <laughs> yeah, but fair enough. That makes sense. Uh, what do you think, Anna? I mean, just do you think this will have a a material impact on even valuations of some of the fintechs? Because really, that opportunity, <clears throat> as as Kate said you know the the restrictions there you know does that have a an immediate impact on really what investors will see the UK as as good for so I it's funny like people have been asking the question since the Brexit vote and it's funny and interesting and telling that like the same question keeps getting um asked and there's no answer or you know maybe there's an answer I feel like it's probably more gray than black and white. Um, I remember like over the past, because I was in London when the Brexit vote happened and then I moved to the US and, and I was still interested. And during that time, I kept asking American firms that were looking to expand to Europe where they were going. And many of them still chose London as a base and they were not dissuaded by uh, Brexit. And I feel like, you know, it's it's not that complicated to set up shop in both places and you can, you know, have a legal legal base somewhere else in Europe and then still operate in the US, in the UK. I mean, there's a natural reason why they would want to come to the UK. The language, the market is very similar, the consumers are more similar. So um, so I, I really don't know. Like my first thought would have been, yes, it's going to be disastrous. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe not. But now like it's, it's quite not ideal that there still isn't an agreement on what happens to this. And clearly that Europe wants to take advantage of it. Why wouldn't they? I mean, no one forced the UK to leave the European Union. Um, if you're a shunned uh, spouse, you're clearly trying to uh, take advantage where you where you can, right? Whether whether Europe can is another is another issue, right? Like if, if I remember, you know, when I used to cover sort of financial regulation more closely, there used to be like this tension between different camps at, at ESMA coming up with like trading regulations and you had, you know, the UK and the Netherlands on one side and Germany and France on the other and the UK and the Netherlands were more pro-business, more financial markets. And now we don't have that anymore. So it might likely be that the whole of Europe loses out, right? Because if you have more of a conservative sort of um, 
conservative in the sense of not not conservative in the sense of Tory, but conservative in the sense of more like more regulations and you know business might not go to like France, Paris, or or Frankfurt. It might just not go anywhere or go to Asia, right? Like. Yeah, it's it is scary. I mean, uh, over that period, and, and Anna, I think uh, the very first fintech insider you were you were ever on. In fact, actually, it might have been episode one that we did together. We were talking about Brexit then, weren't we? Like you say, and it's kind of scary. Between then and now, so EY estimates more than one trillion pounds of assets have been moved from London to the EU. Like that is. Uh, the by the way, the EY didn't say since FinTech Insider episode one. The, the, <laughs> like, uh, it'd be nice if they referenced us in that way. So we're not quite at that level just yet. But uh, uh, but it is amazing that people have had to hedge that significantly over that period of time. Um, I wonder if now that things are settled and things are sorted, that we might just start seeing a bit more efficiencies in in terms of these things. Because like you say, it's people always um, they uh, financial loss is always treated much more. Uh, harshly than opportunity. So the risk of losing markets, the risk of losing opportunity is always people spend a lot more on those things. So hopefully we'll get a bit more normality in the market this year and see what happens next anyway. All right. Uh, next up, another sort of weird and wonderful story for for the week was uh, China tries to rein in Ant Group as Jack Ma seemingly goes missing. Uh, so this is over on Reuters. Uh, we have uh, China's central bank has asked Ant Group to shake up its uh, its lending and other consumer finance operations a month after blocking their record breaking IPO and only days after the country's antitrust authorities said that they have launched a probe into Alibaba. Chinese regular Regulators and Communist Party officials have set out reining in Ant Financial's CEO Jack Ma's empire after he publicly criticized the country's regulatory system in October for stifling innovation. They have yet called for a breakup of Ant, yet pointed to a significant operational restructuring instead. Last month, China issued draft rules aimed at preventing monopolistic behaviors by uh, internet firms and vowed to strengthen anti-monopoly efforts in 2021. Um, all this in while uh, Jack Ma is thought to be missing. I think it's now been confirmed through various different sort of tweets and things that we're sort of seeing that he is uh, safe and well in somewhere. But uh, this is all a bit weird, isn't it? Like you, uh, for all of the things that I expected to be talking about, uh, the CEO of one of the uh, most impactful companies in FS over the last 10 years just disappearing was probably not one of them. Uh, Anna, do you want to talk us through this one a little bit? Because uh, you and Reuters covered this one pretty extensively. It's just crazy. I feel like if 2020 and now 2021 hadn't been so insane, we would probably be looking at this more or maybe not because we tend to always look at Ant as an afterthought, although they're like the biggest fintech there and they're kind of the future of what people hope fintech will turn out to be in the West or they hoped because I'm not sure anybody envies them now. It's just insane. As you said, apparently all of this started because he criticized um, the regulation and I guess the government sort of in a speech. And then from then on, it was, I'm not sure the word persecution is right but then they turned their eyes to ants and like everything went down the drain the giant ipo like i don't think anyone was expecting and i guess it just goes to show you know what happens if you have a big business in an authoritarian regime um and you know for for all of the great stuff we hear about fintech in china and you know it, <laughs> you still have to do what the government want, wants you to do and so i'm not sure that um you know, it's it's a it's a great place to do business still, as as it shows. I'm curious to see where he'll pop up. Maybe he'll leave and start a company somewhere else. I, 
I don't know. It's 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 just crazy. They were just now planning to like start um, doing business more more aggressively in uh, in Europe. So I wonder what's going to happen to those people that they hired in Europe. Like, it's it's just it's just crazy. But it's also like I think an area where obviously my colleagues in in Asia know know Ant much better. But I think like in the West we don't really know about Ant as much as we should, and so it's kind of like mysterious and it, it, it's strange thing as you said to be happening it's crazy yeah it is it is strange isn't it and like you say we you know because you know many of us sort of stand back and take a global view on these things it just seems unthinkable that actually i mean the amount of uh, the amount of abuse boris johnson gets on uh, on twitter like if everybody who uh, criticized him disappeared then uh, <laughs> i mean it would be quite quiet on twitter at that point wouldn't it but uh, um but the the idea that that sort of is how uh, the country is run, but also that the you know such a prominent figure could disappear in that way. I mean, it's going to again similar to to what we've talked about with regards to to Brexit. How this one pans out will actually, I think, say a lot for other people looking to operate in the region as well to a certain degree. So we'll have to have to wait and see what happens on this one. What do you think, Kate? Um, wh- how do you think this will play out? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I agree with a lot of a lot of Anna's points. It feels like. You know, Ant was for a long time, as you say, we didn't really understand it as, as well as we should, but it was kind of seen as this super successful company outside. And I think as long as it was seen as having the interests aligned with the interests of, of the Chinese state, you know, big successful Chinese company and um, you know, plays well for, for the Chinese state, that seemed to all go nicely. But as soon as the company starts to become almost a bit bigger than its boots, then the the state kind of seems to, to look to rebalance things. So, yeah, it's obviously it's interesting from you know, from a practical point of view. I, I know that he had he'd stepped back as as chairman, so he was kind of operating in a slightly different capacity. So in terms of you know, the day to day impact on the running of the company, that'll be interesting to watch watch play out. But he's hugely influential as a as a individual, both within the business but within China as a whole. Um, you know, I was chatting about it with a friend, and they were saying it's like if Jeff Bezos just disappeared. You know, one of these massive characters of, of industry um, so it'll be interesting to see what level of compromise and group are willing to make to kind of fit back into the the approval box with the Chinese state but it's, it's scary. Hmm. I mean speaking of somebody else who we we hope might disappear uh, so Donald Trump has apparently uh, signed an executive order banning transactions with 10 Chinese apps though that included Alipay, WeChat Pay, uh, citing national security as the main concern. I imagine anything he says, we can probably take as a bit of a pinch of salt. And I imagine we're going to be hearing from a lot less, given he's been banned on pretty much every social media. But uh, um, so, I mean, it feels like the backlash of China in the US sort of continues a little bit. Um, and it would be really fascinating, I think, to, to see how this one plays out. And I think the impact of it, I, I do think, will have a uh, not just a big impact for, for Ant, but a big impact for... Uh, China and the sort of entrepreneurial opportunities that sort of come from China, because there's been such a big explosion in, in Asian fintech. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens on this one. Ayana, uh, do you do you have any comments on this one, or do you worry about disappearing? I worry about disappearing for sure. I'm a I'm a fintech lobbyist in the UK. I don't want Boris to call for me to be uh, whistled away in the middle of the night. So I'll keep quiet on this one. <laughs> it's I, probably um, safe. I really want to know what talent show Jack Ma was going to be a judge on, though, because that's apparently kind of one of the first 
things that triggered people noticing that he had disappeared was he sort of mysteriously withdrew from being a judge on on an African talent show. So I, I kind of intrigued to see what that was. I kind of want to to Google it and look up, see if there were some episodes that had him on or if it just didn't even get started. But I mean, certainly the influence of China in Africa, like as a continent, has been huge and is ever growing. So we've talked about the impact of you know, and maybe being constrained on on Europe, and I think that's absolutely reasonable. But yeah, the growth of Chinese businesses into Africa has also been a huge trend recently. So that'll be interesting to watch as well. Yeah, and and I guess as as those things uh, as those things continue, and and when you say that, you mean predominantly in the sort of construction sense, Kate, in terms of you know uh, building roads, building cities, building all sorts of things over there, aren't they? In terms of the the sort of construction side of things, I think yes, yeah, it's, it's a real mix. Um, I mean, just personally, I, I spent a little bit of time in Ghana as as part of a, a work project of Lemon FS, and we were interviewing small business owners, and they were saying that. Um, all of their competitors are Chinese-backed or are able to get cheaper loans from from Chinese uh, lenders or you know Chinese manufacturers. So yeah, the I think at a infrastructure level, absolutely, but also kind of just the day-to-day reality of of operating in in African markets is very influenced by by Chinese decision making and Chinese moves. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, money money definitely talks, doesn't it, in terms of that sense of things and actually being able to invest in those things. It sets up infrastructure in a real way, doesn't it? But uh, all right, well, let's see. I mean, hopefully between next week uh, or this week and next week, we hope uh, Mr. Ma does uh, does turn up. And between then, me and Kate will be uh, frantically Googling what uh, reality TV show he was on just to sort of pass the weekend, quite frankly. All right, guys, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break. We'll be back with you very shortly. This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility, while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. This episode is also brought to you by MyTech. Digital identity verification trusted the world over. Secure more high-value customers while reducing risk and costs with MyTech, a global leader and enterprise partner in identity verification technology. Create certainty in today's digital world with MyTech. Okay, uh, in the next part, first up, we have a story over on Finextra, which is Goldman Sachs to offer digital wealth to the Main Street investors. So Goldman Sachs has begun internal testing on a digital wealth management services platform for the masses as it continues to uh, push into mainstream consumer market. The automated investment service is currently ongoing trials with staff and is due to be rolled out in early 2021. The digital service is called Market Invest, what else? Uh, and the employees who sign on to it will pay an annual management fee of 0.15%, according to the company memo. The account can be uh, started with as little as $1,000, giving users a choice of three model portfolios composed of ETFs from Goldman and outside providers. I mean, this is super. Is this is this exciting? I mean, <laughs> I mean, didn't didn't Nutmeg do this really well like a long time ago? Um, I mean, it's exciting because Goldman Sachs are doing it. But I mean, Anna, is this something? Obviously, you've got a great view of the U.S. market having lived out there. But I mean, should we be excited by this? No. Um, so I mean, obviously, if Goldman, as you said, if Goldman does something, then. By default, we should be excited, I guess. But this has really been a long time in the making. They've been speaking about this for ages. 
Um, and by now, it's like highly commoditized. You don't really need that great technology to run a robo-advisor. Many big banks have set up their own. Some have closed their own robo-advisors. People were expecting, you know, when the big banks came along for robo-advice to explode. Has it really? No, not really. So, you know, even the wealth, welfare and embitterment, um, you know, they're growing, but they haven't boomed. Like Schwab has a lot of clients, but they have a lot of clients everywhere. So I... I guess it's 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 natural that they would do this because it's like an additional service that you can get from Goldman if you have your money just sitting there. And let's not forget that they had like very high interest rates and now they've dropped if you had a Marcus account. So probably they're trying to like limit the damage of people trying to move their money somewhere else because it's just sitting there now and it could be sitting somewhere else. Um, but, you know, maybe like what the robot advice landscape needed was Goldman Sachs to, to be booming. But as of now, I don't know, like, what what are they doing that's special? And also with RoboAdvisor, I always wondered, like, we always focus on how much money they're getting in terms of assets under management. But when will we start asking them, what are your returns and how do we compare returns between the RoboAdvisors, you know? Because maybe the, the Goldman strategy will be amazing and, you know, you'll make more money than if you have your money with Betterment or Nutmeg. But, you know, let's let's wait and see. Yeah, it's interesting as well. I mean, on this one, uh, Marcus are going down, or Goldman Sachs are going down the, the the route of Apple on this of sort of sticking with a prefix and calling everything something after it, right? So, you know, we've got uh, the investment side of things. We've got Marcus Invest. We've got Marcus Insights, which is a financial tool. I mean, I wonder if they're going to just keep, you know, now they've got a technology platform in Goldman Sachs that allows them to do these things. Are they going to sort of run the gambit down there? But um, I think they it have is Marcus interest- Pay also, right? I think yeah. I remember seeing some pre- like presentation last year and seeing Marcus Pay pop up and I was like, wait, what, what's what's that? So yeah, it's Bloomberg and, and strategy of putting your name on everything. Well, as uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good way of making sure you get trademarks. Eleven uh, FS everything uh, is my is my rule, quite frankly. But uh, Kate, what do you think? Uh, is this a good strategy from Goldman Sachs's perspective? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, it makes it makes absolute sense, and it, the writing's been been on the wall for for a little while. I mainly just find it funny that they can do like a friends and family launch of a wealth platform amongst their own staff. So, you know, how many how many fintech startups or kind of new entrants to this space could could do that? So that's probably like a handy handy thing for them to have in their favour that they can kind of test run this with their own staff base who've obviously got plenty of money to throw around. So, um, but yeah, I suppose as we as we mentioned, they have set a fairly low threshold for what they're counting as as wealth so you know obviously lots of people don't have a thousand dollars to just put into into a service or into an account but it's not you know maybe as high as as you might have expected based on their traditional reputation so definitely a way for them to reinforce their move into the kind of mass market and try and reach out to to embrace more of that kind of middle market rather than true wealth as, as some people might define it um, I, I sit in the same. I sit in precisely the same position that Anna alluded to of having, you know, not astronomical amounts of money sat in a Marcus account, but some savings that now earn very, very little. So I was actually sat down over the over the Christmas break, thinking, you know, is it worth leaving it there or should I put it somewhere else? So I think actually it's really interesting to see if if they can bring the the savings and the investment advice together to offer more value, given the interest rates are so shocking. You doing your finances over over Christmas, Kate? That's very it's very grown up. Like I was watching reruns of Only Fools and Horses and eating cheese, and you were like doing your finances. That was that. a family tradition to crack out the financial spreadsheet at Christmas. So you know, once you've got to go, it's, it's, it's annual outing, and then it gets buried and forgotten about, like everyone else. So yeah. <laughs> 
Sounds good. Um, Ayana, what do you think? Uh, I mean, Marcus went down really well with the, the raids, didn't they, when uh, when opened up and, like say, got a lot of people on the, the Saints accounts. Uh, what do you think to this? Do you think, I mean, that I'm going to use the sort of democratization word. I mean, every startup in that sense looks to democratize something. Is this Goldman Sachs bringing this type of investment to the mass market? Um, well, first of all, I think a reminder for me to do my my finance spreadsheet, Kate, because actually I haven't looked at mine yet. So uh, that's my New Year's uh, 2021 January task. Um, it's a good point, isn't it? And I think I, you know, I think I agree with with Anna and and, and Kate on uh, how much of the news this is. Um, I guess when you look at you have to sort of look at Marcus's customer base, don't you, versus others. And I think the point about the sort of the amount of money that you need to, to, to invest from the start, from the get-go, is interesting because there are others in the market that are allowing you to do that with much, you know, lower base. And actually, if you're looking at democratizing finance, how far are you going when you already have to start with sort of a grand um, to get going? I don't know, most people my age who live in London and pay all of their salary to a, a landlord or a mortgage company who have that lying around to begin with. Um, and especially versus uh, so many others in the market, as Anna says, who are who are doing this and doing different things. Um, but as you say, I think it sort of feels like necessary. It feels like it's the right way to go, especially if they're going down that branding route. And I guess if you're thinking about the, you know the customers of Marcus and and what they might like to uh, to aspire to, then it, it probably makes sense then to have a suite of products um, provided by one uh, one Goldman Sachs. Um, from that perspective but um, yeah interesting to see them branching out in this way Mm, it is interesting I do wonder if um, I wonder if this sort of investment opportunity I mean and particularly in this this year as well because even in this period of time we we do have there is you know people who are looking at putting more money into savings that there I mean I'm saving money not traveling to London every couple of days so people are looking at things to do but um i do agree with what you're saying though if you've uh, if they've got a bunch of friends and family who've got a thousand pounds lying around just to chuck into something then um i think i need better friends and family i think that's what we're concluding on this one kate but uh, all right let's let's move on but uh, i guess the proof is always in the uh, the pudding on this one and uh, we'll find out if customers actually care about that when it uh, when it actually gets out into the streets uh, all right, next story we have was over on AltFi. This was N26 Scoop's Brazilian banking license to take on Nubank. So German fintech N26 has received a special fintech-friendly license from the Brazilian Central Bank. This will allow the, the fintech to carry out credit operations such as third-party credit analysis and ability to issue electronic currency. N26, uh, which it unexpectedly quit the UK just shy of a year ago, Goodness me, was that a year ago? Uh, citing Brexit, first announced plans to launch in Brazil back in 2019. Uh, they had one of the largest funding rounds of last year, raising 100 million as part of a its 470 million Series D funding round. N26 will go head to head with the largest bank in the world, Nubank. Uh, I do think this is uh, pretty damn ballsy of them. Um, Nubank are absolutely killing it in Brazil right now in terms of the the market share that they're picking up, but also the the attention and sort of love uh, from the, the customers. So, I mean, Kate, do you think this is uh, a ballsy play from N26? Because, uh, I mean, it seems quite like uh, not quite worked out in the UK. So let's try a bigger geography. <laughs> it's, yeah, certainly ballsy and it's certainly a bigger geography. So, you know, you can see obviously there's been a huge, there was a huge uptick in investment in Latin America as a whole last year. Um, and Brazil's seen a, a large part of that, you know, a very exciting 
fintech space more broadly. Um, I suppose, you know, obviously we're big fans of of New Bank at 11 First and we kind of follow what they do. But you know, part of the appeal of New Bank was that they were coming into the Brazilian market and disrupting a very entrenched set of incumbents who had a large market share. I suppose you, know, you always back the the underdog, but New Bank aren't really the underdog anymore. So I'm not a huge fan of N26 necessarily, but part of me thinks that it's not necessarily a positive thing if the incumbents just get replaced by a monolithic fintech either. So hopefully New Bank will be able to come in. Sorry, no, sorry, okay. N26. It's confusing. They both start with an N. That's not helpful. Um, <laughs> but hopefully N26 will be able to come in uh, and offer something a bit different. So obviously they've got this special license. You know, it sounds like they're going to be focusing a bit more on, on credit. So potentially going more down the lending route. Um, so maybe they'll they'll find a bit of a bit of a different niche. And there's 200 odd million people in Brazil. So theoretically, plenty to go around. But we shall see. Yeah, I mean, as you say, Nubank of uh, very much not a, uh, a sort of a niche player anymore. Twenty five million customers, like that's a that's a that's a fintech that's very much sort of taken off. Um, Anna, I mean, really, the the sort of coverage on Nubank has all been about the numbers, hasn't it? Last year, but actually, they've quietly been going about sort of acquiring different companies and really sort of scaling. But um, what do you think about those guys? About Nubank, I mean, they're they're really interesting. More about sort of, I guess, the story. I wonder, like, why they're like, didn't N twenty six recently? Or I guess a year ago, launched in the US. Like, what isn't that a big enough market? Like, what's going on there? I wonder if this is oh, US not working. Let's try Brazil or let's try everything while we can. I seem to remember there was a time where like startups used to be like focused on one mission, like one thing only, and like achieve that like. Uh, and then move on. Whereas here, I don't know if it's maybe too much of a distraction to go everywhere. Like, especially because I keep saying this every time I'm on the, on the podcast, but I feel like the banking markets are are deeply like like entrenched in, in the culture and in the regulation and in the habits of consumers. And so, what might naturally work well or meet, might be a great solution to financial problems like in one country doesn't necessarily translate in another. So I, you know, I. I I'm just surprised that they would go to Brazil. It's natural. It's a big market. There are so many advantages, but I wonder if it's yet another distraction. And at the same time, Nubank has had been expanding in Mexico and I'm not sure how well, I think, I think maybe they are doing well, but it was another example of, you know, like, can you go cross-border? And I feel like more often than not, you can't really do that well cross-border. And I don't know what it says about, you know, fintech. I've certainly heard that about you know, Latin America in general, that, you know, people who are trying to grow in Latin America always seem to say that Brazil is very, very unique and culturally unique within LATAM even. So let alone kind of if you're trying to compare Brazil with, with the US, even trying to compare Brazil with, with Mexico or Colombia or a country sort of that's, that's a closer neighbour um, sounds very challenging for, for local companies that are trying to expand, let alone N26 that are coming in, trying to you know, pick everything up from scratch. I wonder how much of this is pressure from that valuation and the investment, right? I mean, if you've gone into investors and raised a hundred million off the back of uh, world domination, do you know what I thought about evil laughter after that world domination? But I let I let it go. But feel free, listeners, to kind of uh, fill that gap for yourself. Um, but you know, if they've sort of raised money on that, I wonder if they've got pressure from investors to to really uh, step up the expansion. Because I mean, like you say, the uh, Germany to Brazil is a bit of a leap, isn't it? You know, Brazil to Mexico, there's a lot more similarities between those two, isn't it? So, uh, but again, I mean, I, I feel like the uh, 
customer adoption will be super, super, super interesting to see. I, I wonder how much of the success of Newbank has been against the incumbent organizations within that geo uh, and whether uh, you know another challenger to the challenger actually might be really healthy for consumers. What do you think, Ayana? I mean, Brazil's pretty much high up on my list of places to go. So like, I figure uh, some investigative journalism sort of on the ground on this one when COVID slows down is probably a good idea. Oh, I'd recommend it. I've been. I went traveling through Brazil. And if I if I could move there in a heartbeat, I would. It is the friendliest place on earth. Probably not at the moment with the political climate, but it definitely is the best place to have a party um, for sure. Um, I Yeah, I find it really fascinating, interesting, and I think... Kate's point is um, is a really good one in that the idea that you can you can expand into Brazil and other parts of South America in the same way, you know, they speak a different language than their neighbours than Argentina and and uh, and, and Colombia, and you'll know that when you cross the border and you have to switch from Spanish to Portuguese. Um, it's a, you know, it is a, it's they're very different cultural um, aspects to it, um, but very interesting. And obviously, as you said, there's um. You know, I'm still thinking, I'm still wondering if the whole um, Brexit drove us out of, of Britain um, excuse is is one that I believe in. Um, but I guess with the money that would have gone to a, a British expansion, they have to go out and find another market to conquer. So it's, as, you know, as Anna said, it's the, it's the typical fintech challenger bank approach. It's just to go out and conquer all markets in one go at the same time. Well, Brexit shoves you out of, uh, of Britain, then you better go to Brazil, I guess. But uh, let's um, see what happens in this one. And like I say, if, if customers start adopting it, then the uh, huge market potential, as you say, in terms of the scale of the operation. All right, moving on to uh, the next story that was over on Bloomberg. So this is Robinhood users say $300,000 restored from hack and then taken back. So retiree, I'm definitely going to kill this pronunciation of this name, uh, Changti Z potentially, if I've got that wrong. Uh, I'm getting nods from the guests, so couldn't have been too far off, but let's see what, what people say. Uh, says he put almost his entire life savings into Robin Hood. Probably wouldn't advise that, just putting all of your eggs in one basket out the gate, only to lose about 300,000 of that in a hack. So the man found himself panically searching for a phone number after finding that there was no emergency line. He later was pretty relieved when the money was finally returned to his account. However, Robinhood then took the funds back. The company said in an email that their team had concluded its investigations and determined the account had not been compromised and that no unauthorized activity actually had taken place place. Um, obviously, Robinhood exploded in popularity during uh, last year's lockdown, but has had to face mounting customer service complaints and claims of compromised accounts. Uh, an internal investigation last year showed that hackers had hit about 2,000 accounts with advertisements on the dark web suggesting many, many more. Um, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, you know the idea that no unauthorized access had taken place is is sort of long-winded for he might have accidentally given access to somebody to take the money out of the account right we've we've sort of seen this in uh people's grandmas in the uk being sort of scammed out of giving account details and moving things over but uh what do you think kate i mean this is um it's difficult isn't it but where does liability really sit in some of these things it's it's tricky to make a judgment just based on this case alone because i think you know reading robin Hood's response to it they did sort of indicate that this is a much larger amount of money than would 
typically be sat in accounts from their users. So obviously, I think how they've treated this particular case, I imagine, isn't probably going to be representative in terms of the amount of investigative energy they would have put into it and the types of checks they might have done compared to if you lose, you know, a couple hundred dollars or even less than that. So it's difficult to draw a whole judgment across Robinhood as a whole. But yeah, there's been multiple stories recently of, of them struggling to manage claims around around hacking and, and sort of having accounts compromised so clearly as they're becoming ever more established and ever more popular, they're just increasingly becoming a target for, for these types of things. And it sounds like they've not quite got their security in a place where it needs to be to protect their users, given the amount of money that people are putting in. And even if it's not you know, $500 million or $500,000 as this guy put in, it's still probably going to be a hugely valuable amount of money to those individuals. So I think they need to, to step up a little bit and, and improve their customer support by the sounds of it as well, because that doesn't sound great either. Yes. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? When you buy into an online platform, uh, it's difficult then to have a go at them for being an online platform, isn't it? You know, but uh, but at the same time, like I say, this does seem disproportionately large amount. Of, I would have thought the balances for Robin Hood would be, you know, taking zeros off the, the end of that number to, to sort of get to where the maximum would be. I know we've sort of seen in the past, um, you know, Nutmeg's announcements around some of their figures is uh, a lot lower than that. So, you know, it's uh, and free trade similar in terms of the the, um, the UK side. So it, it is interesting that uh, there's such a large amount there. Obviously, we, I mean, we had Tom Blomfield on, didn't we, last year talking about, uh, I, th- I wonder if in this instance, if there is, something untoward happening, whether their ability to really communicate what's going on and maybe the best uh, Robin Hood actually did say on part of this one is that they've referred the case to law enforcement. So, you know, maybe something will come out of that uh, eventually. I mean, Anna, Robin Hood, uh, when you're in the US, is this something you covered a lot or is actually is this something you used? Yeah, no, it's been obviously like the center of attention in fintech this year because of the lockdown and how explosive their growth has been, how much money they've raised, but also how how often they've been down and, and not running. And especially on big market days, I think in March when there was like super high volatility because of COVID, they crashed and people were complaining. Still, they keep growing and keep getting more customers. Um, it might be a case of the growing too fast um, and then, you know, let's do it and then we'll ask sorry later. Obviously, now they're trying to list, so I'm not sure that's a great strategy um, to, to wait and say sorry later. But, but you know, it's interesting. They, they were supposed to open in the UK and then they didn't. And I feel like maybe they, they've realized that they're, they have to get their house in order in the US first to make sure that they're not, you know, going to have these issues more. It is crazy that, you know, the guy couldn't find someone to talk to. Um, they should, especially because, you know, they have the premium service, right? So you'd imagine at least if you're a paying customer, you can get to have someone in a chat at least, right? Um, but, you know, what's surprising about them is also that, you know, although these things keep happening, they keep growing and it's like they're undeterred and, you know, they're, but there have been more questions. Also, you know, issues around, you know, if, if their users are too inexperienced, if they're offering them too much leverage and, you know, again, you know, they keep going down their own road. It's not, they haven't been really deterred in changing strategy. Or- yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, we, we've talked on the show a couple of times before about these types of, um, you know, sort of day trading type in views and, and very much that's not the the, the model or the um 
the advice that Robinhood give any of their their customers. But actually, you know, investments are best done and and left for a long period of time, aren't they? And actually, almost incentivizing and understanding people's um, urgency of of change on this. If if this person is, if you're looking for a long term investment, then instant access and being able to see it 24 seven is, is almost unhealthy to, to, uh, to those things. But, uh, um, all right, we, we better move on though, because there's uh, a lot more things that, uh, we, we need to sort of cover quickly, but I guess on this one and more broadly, then it will be interesting to see whether 2021, just from a PR perspective, have a little bit more good news for Robinhood to, to go, as you say, Anna, particularly as they head to that IPO, it's, uh, it's going to be pretty important for them to, um, to get some stability, isn't it? All right. Uh, as I said, there's a bunch of stuff that happens over the break and actually over this week that we just didn't get a chance to cover on the show. But we're going to give it a go to have it a bit of a, bit of a whistle stop through it. So, Kate, do you want to pick up on the, the first one of these? Sure. So first whistle stop tour coming from our friends at Finextra. So the OCC have approved the use of stable coins for banking transactions top US banking regulator at the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, my favourite named regulator ever, has approved the use of stablecoins for the settlement of financial transactions by banks. The OCC guidance clears the way for banks to participate in independent node verification networks and use stablecoins to conduct payment activities and other bank permissible functions. The guidance does not cover decentralised assets like Bitcoin, however. Co-founder over at Circle, Jeremy Allaire, hailed the OCC's letter as a huge win for the cryptocurrency industry. Others, however, are a bit more wary, including Anglia Walsh, a professor and research associate at UCR Centre for Blockchain Technologies, who says this ruling fails to address the governance operational risks. So um, my take on this, you know, a lot of media a lot of media attention has understandably been focused on the massive increases we've seen in the valuation of Bitcoin over the last few weeks. But I actually think this is a, is a massive development as well. It really suggests that the OCC might be becoming a lot more progressive as a regulator. Uh, and I'm personally fascinated to see which banks take up this opportunity and look to start incorporating stablecoin-based services into their offerings. And on the other side, whether stablecoin providers such as Circle will want to partner with banks. So it's a huge opportunity for them to expand their reach, but banks could end up offering services that they might have been hoping to build themselves. So I guess we'll have to wait and see what comes out from the OCC over the course of this year. I think lots of people are still waiting to find out their position on central bank digital currencies. But there's been a lot of speculation that they were going to be a bit more liberal under their new, under their new leadership. So this seems like a promising early sign. Mm, yeah, I know Simon in our Slack channel uh, for 11FS was getting very excited about this one this week. So uh, let's see uh, see what happens uh, next on this space. All right. Uh, next up, we had one on Bloomberg, which was fintech focused on ditching expense reports becomes a unicorn. So Divi, the financial technology company that offers corporate cards and expense management software, is now valued at $1.6 billion after raising money from investors, including PayPal uh, and a bunch of other people there as well. I mean, that is a huge valuation for, we always sort of say, is it a business or is it a feature? And, uh, you know, I would have thought corporate cards were a feature in a much bigger business, but at $1.6 billion, that is already a pretty damn big business, isn't it? So, I mean, it's amazing to see these players do so well, but also it really points to how broken the support for the SME market has been for so long that, you know, a, a real slither of a business can be so successful. So well done to those guys for uh, uh, the, the raise. Uh, great to see it go from strength to strength. See what you guys do with the money. 
Cool. Uh, and last up, we have a story again over for Nextra. Orange Bank acquires French Neobank anytime. So Orange Bank has acquired French Neobank anytime, extending its app-based services to the freelance and SME market. The acquisition gives the telco a foothold in the small business banking market, having launched three years ago as a pure play consumer bank. Anytime offers business accounts, payments and expense management tools that make life easier for small businesses and has been profitable since 2018. The merger with Orange will provide the business with an opportunity to extend its offering into loans and insurance. So interesting that Orange have chosen to go down the acquisition route rather than building out their own SME proposition. We've seen in other markets that the SME space can become crowded very quickly once developments start to happen in fintechs. So it makes sense to try and get as much of a head start as possible, I suppose, for the team at any time, you know, obviously that we've touched on their branching out into loans and insurance, but they've also talked about the opportunities that the acquisition gives them to expand their reach in France in the short term, but also into Orange's other markets, which are not insubstantial. Um, and SMEs, you know, as David said, have, have historically always been massively underserved. So I'm just optimistic that, that this will help to improve that for, for French SMEs first up um, and then across maybe other countries in Europe as well. We'll keep fingers crossed. Very good. Uh, and this moves us quite swiftly on to the end uh, finally. I mean, we, usually we do like a funny one at the end of the show, but this one's definitely not a funny one and definitely not if you're uh, sitting in the senior management of, uh, of Google, I imagine, in terms of sort of thinking this one through. But um, this is uh, covered by many different outlets, but the one that we picked up was from BBC News. So this is Google Workers Form Tech Giant's First Labour Union. So more than 200 workers at Google's parent Alphabet have taken steps to form a labour union in a rare development for an American tech giant. The members say that the organization will give staff greater power to voice concerns about discriminatory work practices at the firm and how it handles issues like online hate speech. Uh, the group is open to all ranks of the company's US and Canadian workforce, and members who join will contribute uh, about 1% of their compensation to the effort. Um, this is super interesting, isn't it? Because I, I feel like, I mean, there's been lots of different sort of talk um, recently about actually as these organizations get bigger and bigger, more and more scrutiny over how they're run and actually, uh, you know, engagement from the uh, staff of these organizations in how they're run. Um, but a spokesperson from Google said they will continue to engage directly with all employees, although they agree that employees have protected labor rights and that they will support them. I mean, what do you guys think of this one? Is this sort of the um, growing up, period of gigantic tech firms? I mean, Ayana, what, what do you think? Is this a, a good step in the right direction? Uh, well, it's interesting, isn't it? As well as being squeezed by pretty much every government and, and big government and regulator from the US to Europe, then we also got their employees holding them to account on what they, they should or shouldn't be doing. So it's, it's almost like we've had growth of these companies over the last 10 to 15 years, and now they've grown up. Um, they they sort of have to play by the rules in the same way as everyone else does. This this feels like a natural um, next step. I mean, I think I've sort of been trying to follow everything that's been happening around um, the sort of the departure of their their lead um, on on ethics and AI, Timnit Jibru, and and what she was trying to say about the sort of the dangerous path that they might be walking towards, um, and the whole management of that has been really really sort of fascinating to follow. So. It, as, you know, as you said, it feels like they've been leading up to this for some time. So we'll just see how, how effective it is and, and what happens in other companies as well off the back of it. 
Mm. Well, like, like you say, this is sort of hot, hot off the back of um, the so the U.S. National Labor Relations Board uh, ruled that the firm had unlawfully previously fired employees for attempting to organize such a union. So, I mean, this is like second crack at making this happen, and this one sort of seems to be sticking, doesn't it? But it's it is interesting. I mean, the the employment laws in the U.S. are uh, pretty uh, limited. I was waiting to see what adjective you picked there. That was. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'm still trying to make sure that we don't tick that uh, profanity thing on iTunes. So limited was the word that I went for. Um, But actually, you know, is this the ability for these guys to because actually, look, Google is an organization powered by hyper smart people. Right. And actually, at some point, you'll uh, you'll sort of realize that the smart people in the organization have more more sway than the organization itself. So. I mean, Anna, do you think this is a sign of things to come with other tech firms out there? Are we going to start? Are we going to start seeing like unions being formed in a in a real sense? I'm really waiting for uh, Uber drivers to form a union for uh, you know just eat people to form a union. Um, you know, uh, that's a big thing of mine. I don't think society has thought long enough about the fact that we're essentially you know, getting rid of all these protections for workers. And now at a time where, you know, lots of people are out of work and many are going to start delivering food or, you know, driving people around, if they can still go around, you know, we've basically left them with no legal protection. So I feel like, you know, we we were futuristic, but we left behind some big stuff. So, you know, I mean, I I don't know how people get treated at Google, but I, I, I imagine many of them have better protections than, you know, some of the drivers at Uber or Airbnb. And those are big tech companies. It's going to be curious if Airbnb or, or, well, not Airbnb, but Uber Uber employees get a union before Uber drivers. <laughs> that would be really funny. Could happen. You never know. It, well, it, it is interesting, isn't it? Because on that point, it would be, well, actually, you know, we can replace a Deliveroo driver really quickly. But actually, if it's a, you know, machine learning specialist in in Google who have, uh, who want to have more say about actually the the ways in which the organization is being run, then their ability to replace that person is is difficult, isn't it? You know, which is, it is a, it is a weird thing. But, but I wonder if this points a little bit more towards US employment law than maybe anything else in this space. Um, but yeah, I guess we'll uh, we'll have to wait and see how this one plays out. Any uh, closing thought, Kate? Uh, I can see one on the tip of your tongue. Well, I was going to say, I suppose to your point about you know, how easy employees are to replace, you kind of work on the assumption that a lot of these employees at these big tech companies might have historically spotted a lot of issues in the past, but just kind of voted with their feet and and left and, and gone somewhere else because you know there's a lot of competition between these big tech companies for talent, you know, these people want to save, once you've got a, a big tech company on your CV, then you've got much more, much more choice about, about what you can do in your career would be the assumption. So it's really interesting to see that they've now kind of, or starting to move beyond that and starting to think about how they can use their, their position collectively uh, to try and improve the companies that they're working at rather than, than leaving or kind of moving on. So yeah, hopefully it's a start of, um, of, of a movement. Um, I know from, if I, I was doing some some work at delivery a while ago, and I know that the the riders there were, were definitely unionising. So I'm not so sure about Uber, but I think we've historically seen unions focused on more of those those vulnerable groups where the collective power makes much more of an, a difference to their day to day working conditions. But it'll be really interesting to see if this spreads throughout other tech companies as well. Hmm. 
Well, uh, watch the space. Let's see what happens. Do you know what? Actually, uh, and this is tangential, but Deliveroo come, came to Norwich over the Christmas period. That was the highlight of my Christmas break. It's the thing that I've been missing out most about. I know it's nothing to do with this story, but I'm just so grateful that I hope it gets to them, quite frankly. So, uh, all right. On that note, I'm afraid we are going to have to wrap up the show. So thank you so much for listening to us. And thank you so much for the guests for joining us. Anna, where can everybody learn a little bit more about you? On Twitter, uh, it's at Anna Herrera, or you can find my stories on Reuters.com. Very good. Uh, Ayana, where can people learn a little bit more about you? Also on Twitter, although probably not as fintechy as Anna. Um, Ayana underscore um, V, V-E-E. Very good. Uh, Kate? Yeah, also on Twitter, K8 Moody, a mix of fintech and general rants about random things. So I don't know how appealing that is. I'm on LinkedIn as well, just Kate Moody. Very good. And you can find me lurking predominantly on LinkedIn these days. Uh, And thank you very much for listening, everybody. If you do like what you've heard, uh, subscribe to the podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps people find us, which is always really helpful. Uh, As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us over on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider pretty much everywhere at this stage. Or if you want to suggest a guest or maybe just suggest anything else, I guess, at this stage, then just hit us on podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you very much for joining us guys goodbye keeping up with all the noise and news from the world of financial services isn't easy it's easy to get lost in buzzwords jargon and industry speak so sometimes you just need a quick human rundown of the biggest stories well you are in luck Bite-sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters, and what comes next. Bite-sized goes out every Friday at 11am, so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters.